some of this might be a reminder if you stuck around for the business meeting or if you were here, I guess, it was before we did the business meeting, you heard from the missions trip. And some of it may be a reminder of things I've thrown in throughout this Roman Road series. But we were on our road to Gallup and Rehoboth, that's the school, it's right at the edge of Gallup, the far edge of Gallup. We were 782.3 miles from home, or rather 780 miles from home. Here's my dash, that's in my neighborhood, I didn't take a picture while I was driving. That little airplane has been there a number of years, it's still there, it's relatively unmovable, and it's a reminder for me to pray for a kid named Derek, who might not even be a kid anymore. I don't remember how long it's been on my dash, but when I see it, he was a, not in my group, he was a kid of one of my former students, but a kid growing up in our children's ministry. He was in the office, he made a paper airplane, and he walked up to Pastor James, that's me, and he handed it to me. So I threw it in, in the corner of my dash, and said, I'll pray as long as it stays there. And it is years now. I have a couple of those reminders to pray for people. Uh, so it is fun, by the way, when I get to bump into your kids in the hallways, and I love it when they give me something like that, whether it goes in my office or the rare things that end up on my dash. I don't have many, but I have that to my left. And then up on my rearview mirror since last January, I have LeBron James staring at me. I mentioned that. One of the times, and I don't even remember, but as we were driving, and as happens as you're driving, I'm ready for it to be done. I pull over from the fast lane, passing a semi, into the lane on my right to take the off-ramp, which is a 270-degree slow turn under the freeway, and all of a sudden, my car explodes, and LeBron James goes flying from that perch. It was the first time I encountered a gigantic pothole, massive pothole. Two days, two whole states, minus just two miles. We encounter that crater as we're going 75 miles an hour. I love Arizona and New Mexico, by the way. I try not to speed when I'm in California. The worst, those of you who tow vehicles know this, is when you slap a trailer on and you're supposed to go 10 miles an hour slower than everybody else which is a wonderful conundrum of safety pulling a trailer and terror getting flown by as everybody drives faster than that, including semis and other people pulling trailers. That's a fun dilemma in California, but you hit the border and they laugh at me because even in the bus, the hammer goes down on the gas and we are getting up to speed to 75 or 80 miles an hour, depending on what the speed limit is, driving a, pulling a trailer. We weren't pulling a trailer this time, fortunately, because I have no idea what happened. It was like an explosion. As I mentioned, LeBron James went flying. There was some other stuff. We call it the football and things for the destination that were out next to me, between me and Tiff. It's going everywhere. Something probably flew into my wheel well air, or my, my gas pedal area, which is, any driver knows is terrifying, because that thing blew us up. It was Scary, actually, moving over at speed, trying to slow down, reminding myself, don't slam on the brakes because that's almost always a bad idea, but also I have to slow down and recover to make that turn that I'm thinking about. We actually uncovered a little bit of the dash cam from this moment. 
this week, by the way. Me and the tech guys, they do an amazing job back there. I know when something's wrong, we snap around, but here you go. There are longer clips if you like Star Wars and things going wrong in the cockpit, but that's a little one. We gave you the short one. There's a two-minute Han Solo one. Same statement. They told me they fixed it. That pothole's not supposed to be there. As we go through the Roman road and anyone who has driven the California road system since one set of storms, but one stormy season seems to have wiped out every single road around us, including this one out here on McCoy where there's some pretty heavy-duty potholes as well, I'm reminded whenever I drive, the Roman road system has endured 2,000 years. Granted, it does not have semis driving on it regularly, but one storm system take, has taken out so many roads around us, including out in New Mexico, a different storm system perhaps. But the Roman roads endure in January, this is another thing, I, might, I can't remember if I've said it or not, I, a very decent chance I threw it in there even if I didn't mean to, but this year in January, scientists finally caught up with Roman engineers when they discovered why the Roman roads have endured. What they thought was a mistake, lime and limestone in, entering into their mix of building was actually an intention. It's a self-healing reality of the Roman roads, that when cracks and craters or potholes, which are inevitable, happen, the limestone comes in and seals it and makes it whole again. It's pretty amazing. As we've been going through the Romans road, most of it is pretty straightforward. It's the gospel. Chapter 1 through 8 is astonishing because it's amazing, but those of you who have read through it might have noticed what you think are some potholes and craters in chapter 9 through 11, where you're driving along, life is good, you know what's coming in 12, 1 and 2, you might have memorized it in Awana, living sacrifices, transformed, renewed minds as it turns to sanctification, and then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's like you're driving through a minefield as you encounter question upon question and issue upon issue, things that you have to wrestle with or things that may have blown you up like that crater that we encountered right as we were trying to hit the off-ramp. As we transition from the gospel salvation of chapters 1 through 11 to the sanctification producing grace of 12 through 16, you might have noticed what again appears like cracks and craters in Romans 9 through 11. They aren't. If they are, I think that Roman self-healing road reality is what happens, and I think Paul in his arguments is infusing some of that, not crater filling, but that, that road wholeness, that what to us might seem like something's wrong, but that Paul has put in there and said, this is actually a natural progression down the Romans road. It certainly might not be what you memorize and what you share in that moment of presenting the gospel to somebody. But as you read it, you might rightly have to pause and think it through. Let me start with where we're going to end today, Romans 11:33 through 12:2. But then I'm going to deal with two 
of those things that might have knocked you off of your smooth ride while also throwing in one other verse because it's just incredible. But let's start with where we're going to end. Romans eleven thirty three through 12, 2. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forevermore. Amen. And there's a pause, but then it continues to 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's an amazing set of statements right there. We're going to come back to them. If I lose you in the next two craters, just go back to those verses. That's where Paul ends in chapter 11 and then picks up in chapter 12. And by the way, that might be the best chapter placement in all of Scripture. I talked about that a couple weeks ago of those are added in and there's some that get it wrong. That one is perfect. Because 11 is a definite end with an amen in there. And you're supposed to pause and breathe. I'll probably come back to that. But in case I forget. And then it transitions into 12. Which is a new progression where Paul's going with it. It's connected. But it is a kind of restart as Paul tackles sanctification then. But let's look at chapter 8. We're going to go back a little bit. Verse 29. I'm, I'm going to read 28, 29, and 30. And then also jump to 11.2. Because Paul reuses a word there that I think has an impact on chapter 8, 29. Romans 12, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, remember that word, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's in that amazing chapter 8 section where he starts with no condemnation, 8-1, and he ends at no separation. And throughout the chapter is just beautiful statement after beautiful statement. Profound. If you can only memorize one chapter of Scripture, Romans 8 would be one to consider. It's incredible. We like verse 28, that God works all things for the good. And then 29 and 30 throws a lot of words at us in theology. And that's one of the places where we kind of hit a little pothole sometimes as we debate that theology and what it means. But you notice that word foreknew in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And we often pause or stop there and write theology and think, okay, he put it in order, and so that must mean this. But in 11.2, he uses that word again. Chapter 11.2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And foreknew could mean on face value what it seems to mean and what we often take it to mean, which is just to know before or to know beforehand. 
Many people understand it that way. That's what I used to think when I was in high school. That's how I made sense of that. That's how I made sense of election and how I made sense of his calling and of the word for new. He knew the decision that I would make, and he elected based upon that decision. There are many people that take it that way. But it could also mean, rightly, not twisting it, but rightly, and I think and others think more likely means, I very well might think it because of them, but also because it seems to be a better fit with the context of 11.2 and the other meaning doesn't work in 11.2. That it means to know, to know, not to know a decision, but to know beforehand as in relationally. God relationally knew, 11.2, God relationally knew Israel beforehand. Yes, he knew their decisions, but that doesn't fit in 11.2. To know relationally, not talking so much about knowing intellectually or decisionally, although again, certainly God knows those things. One of my favorite cheat tools, it's not a cheat tool, it's just a Greek language tool, but it's R&R, Reinecker and Rogers. It's their linguistic key. It defined it this way. Interestingly, in 829, it defines it this way. Not in 11.2. 11.2, it requires this understanding. But it's to fix the regard upon. To know that way. That to know in that I have put my affection or my regard upon you beforehand. And in a very finite way, we have an excellent Seven analogies of this, anyone who's in a family. But the parent and the family example highlights what that would mean. And I think that's what it's saying. Not that God foreknew your choice and so he elected you, but that God foreknew you in relationship, which is profound. And remember, he does this infinitely and perfectly. We do this finitely and imperfectly, but let me give you examples from my life. I knew, shockingly, unshockingly, I knew that I loved my kids before their birth. I loved Caitlin long before she was carted off to NICU down the hallway as I came off the elevator from lunch. I didn't know that meal would be such a significant moment. But that wasn't when I realized I loved this little kid as she got carted away from me and my wife. It was long before that. I loved Isaac long before I knew if he was a Christmas or a New Year's Eve child. I write NYE in there and I keep thinking New York, sorry. My brain hitched on that. Christmas or New Year's Eve, we didn't know if he was coming. January 4th is when he was born, but it could have been 1231 or before, which would have been great for tax purposes but not so good for birthdays. So we loved that he came in January. But we didn't know yet, but I knew I loved him. I loved Nathan long before the, the medical staff jumped and screamed. No joke, they don't prepare you for this when you're taking classes, but then when they were checking to see how dilated Tiffany was, he grabbed their finger and they were not ready for that. So the medical lady jumped back five feet, not an exaggeration, and screamed, 
And the new parents in the room thought, that's not normal. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. We do that. We're the ones having the baby for the first time. But I knew that I loved him before that. In fact, and I, I, I'm not over-exaggerating in this. We just don't think about it this way. But I knew that I loved him on my first date with Tiffany at the Eagle's Nest on Biola's campus. When I realized this is the one. This is probably where this is going to go down the road. There are plenty of things that could hijack this. And I don't know if we'll be blessed with kids or not. But I already knew that I would love them if we married and if we had kids. There was no doubt. Do I do that imperfectly? Yes, every day of my life. But I foreknew them. I didn't have to meet them to love them. And any parent knows that. But it's not just parents. As an uncle, the same thing happens. We were in L.A. with my family in July, hanging out for Nathan's birthday, actually. It was a month away, but we could all go to Universal Studios. He wanted to do that. And I was hanging out with a guy named Will that I'm not related to except by law and distantly, so to speak. He's married to my, my oldest niece, Aiden. But I knew back when my sister announced that she was pregnant with Aiden, that should she marry, I would love this man. Because he's now family. He's an awesome guy, by the way. And he loves my kids. But on paper, he's just some random kid from Oxnard. I don't love all the people in Oxnard. I know God calls me to that, but I don't go to the Chick-fil-A in Oxnard and think, I love you all. And if I walked in that way, they would be concerned. I didn't know him yet, but I foreknew him. Right before COVID, we went back to our North Carolina family. There, many of them grow up. We're going to put up pictures of the five sisters. I'd never met two of the sisters in that picture. Hopefully you all know Tiff. She's the one on the far right. The sister I've gotten to know, Tyson, is the next one over, and the other three are the North Carolina sisters. One of them we drove up to In-N-Out to visit because she and her family had flown in for a wedding. So we went to an In-N-Out in San Francisco. I do not care about most people from North Carolina, and I am not driving three hours north to go to In-N-Out with them. But I foreknew her and her husband. They're my family. And we met the whole family that was out there, including a little kid that's nicknamed Tater Tot. A total ball of energy. Y'all have that one in your family? This is our that one. Spectacular kid running around. And long before I ever knew that kid existed, he had my affection. How much more our infinite God in his foreknowledge of us. That is what Romans 8, 29 and 11, 2 is talking about. Not that God knew your decision, but that God knew you. And he elected you, and he called you. Little overview, overview. we're going to transition. Looking at 9 through 11, 11, 2 pulls into this. But 9 through 11, coming out of that amazing chapter 8, but don't forget, he's been talking about no separation. Nothing can separate you. And then he basically says, but what about Israel? And that's where the real and the massive craters and potholes might be bumping into your nice cruise down the Romans road. Paul addresses first century Israel, rejecting Christ and salvation, 
And if you've read through Romans this summer, it might have been something that stirred up some questions. Often when I tell kids to read through Romans, which is usually Romans and John, John's more typical. People will tell you, read the book, the Gospel of John first. I often go to Romans and I just say, grab a notepad. You're going to have a lot of questions. Write them down and talk with somebody. You might have bumped into that. I'm not going to resolve them all today, but I'm going to tackle a couple. Well, that one and then another one right now. But first... To give you a moment to breathe, I want to take you to 9.5, Romans 9.5. This one is not super controversial. It's just wonderful. It's talking about the first century nation of Israel who seems to be rejecting Christ and maybe being rejected by Christ. And in that argument, he makes a statement, Romans 9.5, to them, to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, the Old Testament, the history. And from their race, their family tree, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah. It's Jesus. And then it makes this wonderful statement. Who is God over all? Blessed forever. Amen. Even in the midst of these potholes, there's an amazing statement. I hope you do wrestle with this, but in a different way. How wonderful of a statement that is, if you don't know Christ, what the significance of that statement would be, and if you do know Christ, how significant that statement is. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. There's going to be another amen in a minute, but in this moment, amens, like Selah in the Psalms, should remind you to just sit, And rest in that statement for a minute. To just let it bathe over you. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It states that there's one God in three persons because biblical faith is monotheistic. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but it's an allusion to the Trinity, the blessed Trinity, that Jesus is God and there is still only one God. So it should call to mind anybody who knows Scripture and claims Christ, one God and three persons, and then it should drive you to that statement, Jesus is God and is over all. If you ever wrestle with your faith, come back to that sentence, Jesus is God and is over all. But I don't know what to do with Romans 9 through 11. I got questions. That's okay. Think about them, wrestle with them, ask them, and land on Jesus is God and is overall. Don't get thrown off from that one just because you have a question as Paul addresses no separation in the nation of Israel and what he's seen with his own people. And that brings us to not just the nation of Israel, but Paul's particularly talking about it. In 13 through 23. If I lose you on this one, go back to that original passage I read, the way he ends that amazing doxology, and go back to 9.5, that Jesus is God and is over all. Foreknowledge might have messed with you a little bit. This one's going to mess with you a lot. Romans 9, 13 through 23. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That's those no-nevers. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul continues on, but that's the gist of what he's talking about. Couple of things he says in there. Esai hated that maybe has made you uncomfortable. Pharaoh was hardened. Probably less uncomfortable because Pharaoh's not a very good guy. But then he throws out that question Is God unjust? And he follows it with a no, never. No, God's not unjust ever. And then if you know the theology, you're left with this question Is Paul teaching double predestination or reprobation, as it's also known? So before we get lost in that difficulty and argument, and I'm not going to get that much time to spend on it, there's so much more that you can wrestle with there, I want you to enjoy the beauty of Scripture for a moment. It's hard to see, harder to see in the English, so I'm going to do my best bad version of reading it in Greek, but maybe you'll hear it a little bit. Ton Jacob, or Jacob, Jacob, ton Jacob agapesa, ton deisa emisesa. You catch that flow a little bit more, that rhyming a little bit more. It's a catchy bumper sticker statement that's being said. It's Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, but in Greek, the listeners would have heard, Tan Jacob Agapesa, Tan Esa Emisesa. There's a beauty of language in that, no matter what it's saying. And by the way, most and many languages have beauty. It's hard to translate sometimes, but it's lyrically and audibly attention-grabbing. And Scripture has artistry. Now, many languages in Greek and Latin, uh, I think Spanish is this, this way. Most people think French. I think it's pretentious. Other people think it's the most beautiful language on the planet. Have this where it naturally rhymes because of conjugations and different things, but I don't think that's an accident there. Even in its hard statement, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, we're supposed to get caught up in the artistry of the statement. When I was looking it up, my two favorite resources both pointed out that it's an idiom, by the way, that's being used. R&R, I mentioned it before, the linguistic key by Reinecker and Rogers, says this, and I think it's more paraphrased than a quote. I didn't put quotes in there, but it means I prefer Jacob, I prefer Jacob to Esau, although Paul might be arguing that it's literal and not just an idiom. It's possible he's just flat, hard stating it, but as an idiom, it just means he prefers. Knack, New American Commentary by Mounts, this is a quote, it says this, the strong contrast is a Semitic idiom that heightens the comparison by stating it in absolute terms, end quote. If it's correct, it means this, I love Coke, I hate Pepsi. We joke about this in the youth ministry. There's one picture. I should have tracked this one down. I didn't think about it until right now. 
where I'm drinking a Coke in front of the youth group or just the guys, and Randy's taking a picture, picture of me, or Pepsi, sorry, I'm drinking a Pepsi, and Randy Georgie, Awana commander recruiting all of you, is taking a picture of me, so I'm intentionally giving him a thumbs down sign so they couldn't use it as proof later that I love Pepsi. If you've ever seen me, like the Ravine picture a couple weeks ago, and it's a Pepsi container, I promise you it is not Pepsi in there. I don't like Pepsi. I'll get a root beer, I'll get a lemonade, I'll even drink a tea, but I don't order a Pepsi. I'll drink water or I'll go without. I love water, by the way. My friends don't believe me on that, but I do. I like water. Water's my favorite, but to mix it up, Coke is my other favorite. Or as a Lakers fan, I love the Lakers. I hate the Celtics. Now, as an idiom, we all know I don't wish damnation on the people that are represented by the Celtics fandom or the organization or the players or the Pepsi product people. I am not wishing them awful, slow, evil deaths. I just don't like it. I mean, there's no point where if I drank a Pepsi like that one, I would start, you know, retching and convulsing. It's just, no, I don't like it. I don't understand those of you who do like it. You're welcome to it. Have all of mine. I don't want it. One of my students, by the way, stayed at our house one time and filled my fridge with Pepsi. It was an awesome, awful prank. It was just, I'm like, I don't even know what to do with that. It's going to sit there forever. Actually, I do, because my, my family will drink Pepsi. Well, some of my family will drink Pepsi. But if it's just an idiom like that, that's all it means. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, but it's an extreme. It's to make the point. On the other hand, William Hendrickson a well-known Reformed pastor and commentator says that Paul is, even using the idiom, is preaching and arguing double predestination or reprobation. That is, not only that God chose people to go to heaven, but he made people and chose them to go to hell. In fact, he says it's logically necessary. That does make sense to me, the logical side of it. I just don't know that Scripture teaches that. He feels that it does. He does acknowledge, by the way, that it could be translated, Esau I loved less. Like, well, that seems like a big deal to me. But he still believes the Bible is teaching reprobation. Here's the argument then. If that is what Scripture is teaching, however you feel about it, fine. You wouldn't have to like it, but you would have to accept it. This is the reality of God, that God, as God, gets to decide how this world works. And Paul makes a statement, who are we to talk back? It doesn't matter if we don't like it. I do need to say this, that is exactly the argument Paul is writing, or rather having written, but that he's writing in the letter. If God did this, who are we to disagree? That's his statement. I don't have a problem with double predestination if Scripture teaches it. I just don't think it does. And I'm not trying to twist Scripture or manipulate Scripture, nor do I mean to be dismissive of it. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to believe it, and we're trying to live by it. But so did Hendrickson, and he was very good at it. So what do we make of this? Let me look at the argument a little bit, not as long as some of you are going to want, although most of you are like, thank you, we do want to get out of here at some point. Chapter 9, it says, what if? And that seems significant to me. What if this is what happens? That's part of his argument too. Paul might simply be granting the argument 
or the challenge. The no-nevers. Somebody's challenging it and he's dealing with it. We do this as in apologetics and as we're arguing with people, we'll grant an argument. I don't agree with you. If I had an argument with a Pepsi person, okay, wait a minute. Let's assume that Pepsi's the best soda. It's not. I will argue that it's not, but let's assume that for a minute and let me pick you apart assuming your position or let me deal with what your position's getting at by assuming it and then let me correct it somewhere else. Paul might simply be granting the argument. He could be arguing from an extreme as the idiom would imply. And it would be this. If God would still be just to the extreme of reprobation or double predestination, then he's certainly just in the doctrine of election. Even if that's all that scripture's teaching. Another commentator, Cranfield, on Romans states that Paul's wording indicates he's acknowledging that this illustration is inadequate. You might remember that from Romans 6. Another crude or crass, not in a moral way, but in an earthy, awkward way, when it's talking about slaves to righteousness. If this helps you, assume yourself as a slave of righteousness, but that's not the way, best way to think about following Christ, is that you're a slave because Galatians 5.1, you're free. In Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation. You're not a slave, but if holiness requires you to think as being a slave to righteousness, then so be it. This argument could be crude, rough around the edges. My grandma's favorite, J. Vernon McGee, states it this way. It's a long section. It'll be on the screen. My friend, although we cannot intrude into the mysterious dealings of God, we can trust him to act in justice. We cannot avoid the doctrine of election, nor can we reconcile God's sovereign election with man's free will. I would use the phrase effective moral agency. I don't have time to pack, unpack that for you. I don't like the phrase free will. I don't think that's what scripture teaches, but we do have will and agency. We make real decisions. Back to this quote. Both are true. Let's keep in mind that this is his universe. He is sovereign. I am but a little creature on earth, and he could take away the breath from me in the next moment. Do I have the audacity to stand on my, my two feet, look him in the face, and question what he does? That would be rebellion of the worst sort. I bow to my creator and my redeemer, knowing that whatever choice he makes is right. By the way, if you don't like what he does, perhaps you should move out of his universe and start one of your own so you can make your own rules. But as long as you live in God's universe, you will have to play according to his rules. Little man needs to bow his stiff neck and stubborn knees before almighty God and say, there is no unrighteousness with thee, end quote. So let me summarize that for you, or all of this for you. There is plenty more argument to be made. There's a reason that pastors, theologians, and Christians have, have wrestled with this one throughout the decades, centuries, forget decades. Summary, election is clear. It is consistent and is taught throughout Scripture. God chose us. That is clear. Agency and culpability, that means we're responsible. Pharaoh is responsible in the, his hardening. Scripture both says that God hardened him, but it also says that Pharaoh hardened him. Agency and culpability are clear and consistent and are taught throughout Scripture. We really choose. God chose us, and we really choose. Those are both taught in Scripture. Reprobation, or double predestination, is less clear 
and is neither consistently taught nor taught throughout Scripture, even if some argue it is logically necessary. Paul uses it here, and you have to wrestle with what you think that argument means and how it's being used. But it is not like choice, our choice, and it is not like election, God's choice. It is not taught consistently and repeatedly throughout all of Scripture. It might be alluded to in a moment. It is clearly used as an argument here, but it is not vast and throughout Scripture. Here's how I deal with that challenge, by the way, and this is an imperfect illustration, as all are. But I think it's the primary illustration of what election is, and that's the one of adoption, that God adopted us. No reasonable person would ever look at an adoptive parent and tell them that they logically and necessarily condemned the others because they chose one or a set of siblings. No. In adoption, they chose a child or a set of children. They did not abandon or condemn the others. Can that break down when it's applied to God? Yes, that's the challenge that's being made. And Paul is making the statement, even if, or he's making the statement, it doesn't matter. But who are you either way? Who are you to talk back to God? I got to deal with that last part of that as well before we move on to that amazing doxology. Paul is not challenging the genuine pursuit of an answer to an honest question. J. Vernon McGee's challenge in that quote is to our culture and to argumentative individuals, it is not to anyone who is trying to wrestle with faith, doubt, or questions. I'm going to steal a verse from Russ Lycan's series that's coming up after Labor Day in Jude. Jude 22 says this, and have mercy on those who doubt. Scripture is challenging the combat, combatant, the person being combative with God, and not the inquisitive. Whenever it tells us to knock it off, it's going to the person with attitude, not going to the person genuinely struggling to understand. And churches should be a safe harbor for those that are wondering and wandering, even as we are not a safe haven for the divisive. We have to balance that tension as well. There are many other statements in chapter 9 through 11. He's going to turn the corner in 12. I'm going to leave 12, 1, and 2 for the sake of time. It's amazing. I'll pick it up next week in introducing the rest of that. But I want to end with, or start ending before you get too hopeful, with 11:33 through 36. Let me reread that. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul wraps up this tough section 9 through 11. He wraps up all of 1 through 11 by saying, be amazed by God. By saying, I'm amazed by God. The one writing words that we are wrestling with ends before going to sanctification and says, 
this God is beyond me. He is knowable and he is close, but he is also infinite and beyond me. Paul lays out an amazingly detailed gospel. Chapters one through, or three chapters, one through three of brutal condemnation. Five chapters, four through eight of beautiful justification. And then three chapters that might be making your head spin, but he lands on how amazing and mysterious our loving and knowable God is. Deep riches, unsearchable, unfathomable, fathomable, there we go. Who understands him? Who counsels him? Who does he need for anything? And the answer is nobody. He's also quoting scripture in there, by the way. Isaiah and Job. In fact, in Job, it's the Leviathan section where he says he puts Leviathan on a leash and carries him or leads him around. And who are we to challenge him is what Paul's saying. Paul's intentionally grabbing those. The Isaiah section, this is a Christmas verse. Those of you who are diehard as a Christmas movie people, this is a Christmas verse. Paul made it a Christmas verse. Well, actually, Handel's Messiah made it a Christmas verse. Paul uses it. Isaiah 40 is the rising up on wings, but also comfort ye. Read those chapters. Isaiah 40 and then Job, I think it's 38 through 41. Read those because that's what Paul is alluding to in that doxology. But deep in riches and unsearchable, unsearchable, but also wisdom and knowledge and judgment. And then everything's from him, and everything's through him, and everything's to or probably for him. All things. The people sitting around you. Everything you encounter today. The planet we haven't even discovered yet. That's way out there and beyond our telescopes. To God be all glory and praise. And then the other amen that we should sit at. Amen. Paul doesn't get caught up in that difficult section. He just finally transitions. Kind of says, if you're not with me yet, that's okay. Let me bring you back to God. Jesus over all. Things to take from today, if I've made your head spin too much, number one, be amazed by grace. We have questions for sure. But God chose you and he loves you. Be amazed by God. When those questions are flooding you and you don't have answers, just turn to the God that is before you and sit amazed at him. It's okay if you're a little uncomfortable in front of God. He is infinite. We should all be uncomfortable before God. But his amazing grace lets us rest easy before that amazing and infinite God. Don't be afraid of questions. God can handle them. Genuine questions do not get challenged by Scripture. They get answered by Scripture. Don't be afraid of questions, but neither be crippled by them. There's a whole generation of even church people right now that are bumping into a question, what do I do with this double predestination section in Paul? And then we're just grabbing everything, throwing it out and walking away. Don't let your questions cripple you. Even Paul lands at God's mysterious. 
my God is so much more than I can imagine. But I can cling to these truths that he forgave me and he loves me. And then where he's going, be transformed. Be transformed as God's grace invades your life. And his infinite being confronts your finiteness with his love and grace. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, we praise your name. You are so wonderful to us. With our heads spinning sometimes, you still come alongside us and say, but here's the truth. Jesus is God and over all. Lord, we thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you love us. And we thank you that we can sit welcome in your presence, an infinite God that is unsearchable and knowable. Lord, thank you for your grace. Amen.